for those of you out there that are just getting started with AA, the best way to do this thing is just concentrate on today. It's one day at a time. You don't have to have a bunch of sobriety like me to stay sober this day. And if you picked up a desire chip recently, it's just one day at a time. That's the way you do it. And life gets so much better if you can stay sober and work these 12 steps, find a sponsor, and let God into your life. God bless all of y'all, and I hope all of y'all stay sober. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 23. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad that you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. My name is Stan Mongaris. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and my sobriety date is January 25th, 1989. Nice. How many years is that? That's 33 years. 33 years. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Stan is a personal friend of mine. I've known him for several years, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear him today. I want to start off by asking you about the early years of your life, and what did your family look like, and where were you born? I was born in Dallas, Texas, Baylor Hospital. We lived, <laughs> we lived in the... Uh, That's so cool. Like Seriously, more than half the people on this podcast have been born in Baylor Hospital. Have they really? And they all say that right off the bat. How about that? So you're, you're in good company. I was born in Baylor Hospital in 1970. What year were you born? Uh, 1955. Uh, we lived at that time in the Lovefield area, medium-sized house uh, in the Lovefield area. My dad owned his own business. And growing up, I went to a school called Lee Tot, and it just seemed like I had a pretty normal, I had two hardworking parents, uh, a father who had been a bombardier World War II, didn't have to see active service because they dropped the bomb over there in Japan and the war ended, but he was right on the cusp of heading to do active duty as a bombardier in World War II. Real quick on my dad, he uh, he was at SMU and uh, his GI Bill ran out, so he got his four-year degree and he started opening his own businesses and it provided well for the family. Uh, Lee Tot was a great school, uh, elementary school. I wasn't the best student in the world, but growing up I had lots of friends and I have to say I had a pretty normal childhood. Other than my dad would ha- have drinks every day at about five o'clock. He was one of the most unusual men I'd ever met. He was a functioning alcoholic. He could get fairly loaded every day and then get up in the morning and go to work. It was amazing. Uh, my childhood, I have uh, fond memories of those days. Uh, I have one older sister who I love, and I lost her two years ago. It was just a good time for me in childhood. I wouldn't, hadn't started suffering with this disease yet. Was he flying in the B-52s? He was. Really? The bombardier, he would sit in the back and control the bomb bay doors? That's correct. He would take over the plane. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a mathematician type. Yeah. And uh, he would control the plane, drop the bombs, and give the plane back to the pilot. Yeah, that's wild. And he was so close to having to go to active duty. Mm-hmm. He missed it by about three weeks is when they dropped the bomb and the war was over. What were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person growing up? 
My mother would take us to church, get us involved in church to the point I became the drummer in the church band, and we, we traveled to church camp. But back then, it was it was more as growing up. It was all about Stan, me. Um, it didn't really seem like I was all in with God. I wouldn't give my heart to God. Um, I was very self centered. Um, I'd be playing the drums for the church group, looking at the young ladies back then. Um, <laughs> Uh, at camp, you know, same thing, having fun. Um, I, I just wasn't spiritually. I it was it was stand about stand, and I didn't have problems yet in my life, so I wasn't. Uh, I didn't develop that need for uh, for God, and it was just like I was doing the thing, but I wasn't doing it the way I should have been at the time. Did you believe in God then, or were you not like sure, like fifty fifty, or what were you thinking? I, th- you know, I did believe in God. I knew there was a there was a God out there, but uh, I just wasn't all in with it. I just, uh, uh, you know, uh, growing up, it was it was about getting on the ten speed, going to the mall. It was about going, you know, it was about stand and stand stuff. Even when I was at church and involved with the church. You know, I was kind of doing the wrong thing looking at the young ladies. I wasn't giving my heart to God like I should. Okay. What about drumming? Are, are you still drumming? Do you have a I, set of drums at your house? I do not. I kind of gave that up after <sighs> after my uh, church tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the drum set became later in life, it became a, a place for me to hide my beer cans. <laughs> when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? I know you said your dad drank every day at five. Is that what brought you into the awareness of alcohol? So we had this house at Love by Love Field and he, his business kept doing very well. Uh, he was pursued by the FBI because he spoke Spanish and I'm Hispanic and he wanted to get, he wanted to open a little Mexican restaurant, which he did. And it had a little billiard hall in the back, and he was uh, he started dabbling in pool tables and jukeboxes on locations. So he had several irons in the fire, and he declined to go to work for the FBI, and he had his own thing going. We ended up selling the house over by Love Field, moving into Luna Park Estates, uh, and the house was big, and I had all of a sudden lost my down-to-earth friends, and I was over here in North Dallas with all these up in little white folks. Yeah. And it was a real change for me. Um, it was a big change of, of uh, scenery. I was in the sixth grade, and I went from Lee Tot to Withers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that was a change. Tell me about when you took your first few drinks and how did it make you feel in the beginning of your drinking career? How did you get started? A- after this big change, we had two ice boxes, one in the utility room and one in the kitchen. He would keep the one in the utility room full of Mars candy bars and Miller Lights. Friends of mine, we talked about drinking, and they said, man, I'd, I'd have one or two of, the, of his beers. He's never going to miss them. Yeah. And I did one day, and I loved the feeling it gave me. Did you like the taste? Oh, I did. I really? liked the taste. Wow. I liked the way. And that inset started the, the big uh, bass unit on the drum set, the round part, uh-huh. me putting my empty cans in there. <laughs> and after that thing would get full, I would head to the dumpster with with all those cans when no one was home. But it started with just two beers, and and I could have two beers a couple of times a week, and he wouldn't miss them. Okay. And that and he had a completely stocked bar, vodka, bourbon. I mean, an actual walk in bar at this home we had. 
uh, every now and then I, you know, experiment with that a little. So, yeah, I don't think that uh, those first early days, alcoholism was with me. I didn't know I had it. Uh, but I noticed that I got relaxed after a couple of beers, and I loved the effect. Were you drinking by yourself, or were you getting your little friends involved? I was drinking by myself at first, yes. Okay. In sixth grade you started? Um, I want to say probably seventh or eighth grade before I started. Right on. Did you ever get Did you ever get busted as far as your hiding place was concerned or in the drum thing? Did anybody ever, like, your parents or the maid or anybody ever find? I am going to jump a little ahead of you here yeah. at the end of my story since you asked that question. Um, fast forward a minute. I was driving to high school after, after by then, my I was doing more than just drinking. Me and a buddy were waiting outside a liquor store for somebody to buy us liquor and stuff like that. And, you know, I was in athletics. Uh, I don't think alcohol had had its way with me yet. But uh, one day on my way to school, I had the right of way. A lady crunched my little gremlin and tore, completely broke my left femur. They they raced. I was laying on the ground and tried to pick up my left leg, and I remember seeing about oh three inches down from my hip, the bone touched my. It just came up on my skin, okay. and I heard a lot of crackling. Wow. Stayed on crutches for a year and a half. Um, young ladies would carry my books at Wyatt. I had to be homeschooled for a while. This left me in just disarray because I was. You know, football, soccer. Now I've I've been reduced to the blacktop where all the heads are, and I'm starting to find out about marijuana. Okay. And uh, um, I found out that the school I went to didn't have too many marijuana salesmen. <laughs> and my dad, this restaurant he opened, had a little billiard hall in the back. We had some real characters coming in there. Yeah. And a couple of them um, sold me a pound, and I got in the marijuana business. Okay. And that's in high school. Yeah. And I got home one day, and there was a pound of marijuana laying on my bed, uh, and it was all kind of broken out. We used to call them lids back then, into lids. And I looked at my dad, and I said, you know, it took me an hour and a half to put that big old Magnavox back together to hide that stuff. How on earth did you find that stuff? And he said, my friend Joe, the police officer, came over with his dog. And I said, that's unfortunate. And then he proceeded to <laughs> flush it all down the toilet. And I owed two gangsters for that pound of pot. And I was kind of worried about my health at that point. Wow. And, and anyway, that's how quickly life changed for me. It went from athletics to sitting on the blacktop selling selling marijuana yeah and and it got really tough after that he pointed to a school upstate new york he said this is if when the doorbell rings again i'm going to hold them there call their parents when the phone rings again i'm going to ask for their parents so if this doesn't end this is where you're going to go to school and you're going to get a little military haircut and i'm not going to mess with you son and he meant it wow and so that ended my drug sales career because wow. I didn't want to go upstate New York to school. Yeah. So I stopped immediately. I wanted to ask you a, a general overarching question. Do you consider yourself an alcoholic and a drug addict? I do. So I want to slide back a little bit and talk about your dad some more. You said that he would drink every day at 5 o'clock. Did you ever at any point during your childhood, teen years, early adulthood, ever look at that and be like, I mean, is that normal? Is it? Did it cause problems? Did he ever get like meaner or he just pass out at nine or 10 o'clock at night? What, what, what did it look like on him that everyday drinking? Yeah. So it was a little bit dysfunctional. His demeanor would change. My mom would have to walk around on eggshells. It hurt their relationship. 
His drinking was a, a hindrance. I think he could have gone a lot further if he would have found AA. And he went pretty far in his business career. But he never found a, a God, and he never uh, uh, would go to church with us. And then he had heart problems later on in life, and the doctor asked him, well, what do you do for stress? He says, I have about four or five bourbons every day. And the doctor said, well, that's not the way to relieve stress. Well, I'm gonna, I've, I have to put these four bypasses in you or you're going to die. After that, I want you to quit eating all the grease and quit drinking. And he didn't, and he lasted about three years later, and he died. I wanted to ask you, when did you start drinking on a regular basis? When did it kind of get cranked up with you? How old were you, and what did that look like? I started drinking on a regular basis. Uh, this is going to be a really weird, quick story. I was in, uh, well, it's hard to do this quick. I was at SMU, just, just college days out of, I went on a ski trip with the, some SMU. I'd, I'd received a two-year degree from El Centro. All my hours transferred to SMU. I was there. I went on a ski trip to Breckenridge, and uh, we were skiing, and this guy cut me off on one of the, the ski runs. And I looked down, I said, that son of a gun, I'm going to go tell him what I think of his skiing technique. And I chased this guy to the end of the slope. And when I got to the end of the slope, this guy took off his helmet and nothing but beautiful red hair fell out. And it was not a guy, it was a girl. Yeah. I spent the entire next week with her. Her name was Shannon. And we partied, we had fun, and it was great. And I stayed with her and everything was great except when I was coming home, we were, we were waiting in the same terminal for the same plane. I said, Shannon, where do you live? She said, Dallas, Texas. So I'm, I'm going to SMU, still living at home. In one week, I made the decision to buy a vending company with the money I collected from that car wreck I told you all about, uh -huh. which was pretty substantial. That's buying my father's business partner out. I decided to move in with this redhead. This is all in one week. I did. I moved in with a redhead, bought my dad's business partner out, and then dropped out of SMU. And she was working on her doctor's degree. She was 32. I was 20. And it was, I was loving life back then, but the drinking was every day. I would hit, hit a drink or two. Uh, I was introduced to cocaine. I started doing cocaine. I needed a, uh, also introduced to Valium. I needed a Valium or two to slow me down. It was becoming a real mess. So how did alcohol and drugs help you when you first started out? When I was at El Centro and at uh, these places, I really hadn't made up my, my mind, you know, what I wanted to do with my, I didn't know I'd be in the vending business. That's a, a company of jukeboxes, ATMs, pool tables, video games. I would run service calls for him at night, take, take different lounges or restaurants, cue balls, get stuck buck out of dollar takers. Mm -hmm. I had a full set of keys and I was learning more and more this vending business, how to do this, how to get in and out and fix these things. Then I learned how to cover pool tables. So part-time job was running service calls, going to college. He had a restaurant, which I would close on Sunday nights. I would uh, invite all my, all my drinking buddies and we'd just, it'd, it'd be sunny, crazy night is what it'd be. You know, we'd have jalapeno eating contest. Yeah. I had some kind of crazy contest every Sunday night mm -hmm. and give away some cash. Um, so quick question about the mobile ATMs and stuff that you had in these different bars and stuff. Just curious, how much do those hold? I mean, is it... An ATM um, in 20s will easily hold 40,000, 50,000. What? Yeah, I, I only put... God in my ATMs, I mean, in my better accounts, at some points I'll have eight grand in them and that'll last a week. Okay. 
And who is that? Your eight grand, or is it the bank? It's eight? my eight grand. It's your eight grand. So yeah. it's your machine and yes. your eight grand. Yes, sir. Wow. Did you ever have somebody come in with a pickup truck and put a chain on one and try to take it? I've lost two that way, and I've lost two to uh, uh, just a big old tree saw. They saw the game in half. Uh-huh. And, uh, somehow they had an inside track and knew the alarm wasn't being set at night or the cameras weren't working. Okay. And one place knew the cameras were working, and the guy did all this with a ski mask on. Okay. They had, and the, the problem with him, they finally caught him, is he had his cell phone with him. And, and years later, they tracked that cell phone to that place. That's crazy. Yeah, they can ping it and see yeah. which tower you're. But each time they of. do that to me, I want to say the loss is somewhere between four and five grand, and I just take the loss. Did you ever have blackouts? Were you a blackout guy? I was not. When did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? I realized that my drinking was not normal, but I could not control it. Once I started, it seemed like I would have more more than I should. And that only got worse as I got older. Now, let me tell you, let me backtrack. I've left one person out through this process that I should have never left out. Um, this young lady and I started dating in junior high school and she was, she was just great. I want to say back in junior high school, I didn't feel the love that I feel for her now. There was definitely something there. I would date her for a while and then we'd break up, but she'd stay after me. And that's, I'm married 37 years to her today. I wouldn't trade her for a trillion dollars. And that's my lovely wife, Sharon. I also would hear from her, other people don't drink like you. You have a problem. Really? Yeah, that was my next question. Did others ever confront you about your drinking and start to ask you questions about your behavior? So your wife did? She Well, she wasn't my wife at the time. But yes, she was like, you know. And we were on again, off again, on again, off again. And uh, that was all my doings. I would... I would just I would date her for a while and then I'd not date her for a while and uh, boy she hung in there and and you know I wasn't the best catch in the world either the way I was drinking and uh, some of my antics were not of good character right so I couldn't really I was scratching my head it was hard to figure her out I do know this though the parting got to a point where I had to do something to quit I had my own I had the redhead and I didn't mesh uh i got up one day and decided i was getting my own apartment and i got my own apartment and i moved into the village which is party central here in dallas um did you ever use any special techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking or did you never even try to control it i had a buddy that lived in uh, austin texas and he graduated valedictorian of our high school and uh, we just stayed buddies. He drank like I did, but he was a lot smarter than me. He opened a restaurant in Temple, Texas. I would make deals with him. We'll go three or four days without drinking, Steve. We won't drink till we see each other on Saturday night. I'll be darned if my lips weren't green after four days of not drinking. I mean, I had a dry drunk growing, going like no other. But I would do that. I would do deals with buddies. Um, I would do deals with myself. I'm not going to drink today. But then when I started, Katie barred the door. I couldn't quit. Um, Did you ever um, have any legal consequences due to your drinking? About the time when I got that apartment, uh, me and a buddy, we were going to see Carlos Santana, and we had tickets. And I, I say me and a buddy, he was my drug dealer, and he drove a vintage Lincoln with suicide doors. Wow. And... I'm driving his vintage Lincoln. We're outside of Fair Park where we're going to see Carlos Santana 
front row seats, and I get pulled over because I look suspicious in his car. They find cocaine, illegal sex tapes, illegal <laughs> pills, this, that, this, that. And guess who they charged with all that? The driver. My bond was $50,000. And my attorney advised me to say it, it wasn't my car. I didn't know they were there. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And they, the city of Dallas, I think because my family was involved with the grand jury, they no-billed me, okay. meaning... I. The guy got totally off yeah. of all those charges. Um, did you ever end up in the hospital behind drinking and drugging, fights, assaults, car wrecks, anything, any consequences at the hospital, stitches? One time I overdosed a little on cocaine, <laughs> and, and I was having a nervous breakdown, and that was just a simple stand. You need to slow down with the cocaine. That'll be a 1000 bucks. See you later. Uh-huh. I've heard a lot of people that did that. They said they would lay, they'd do a bunch of coke and they laid there in bed and they'd listen to their heart. And they'd be like, I think my heart's getting ready to explode. And that's when I was really introduced to Valium. Um, a buddy of mine had a buddy of his that got in a shootout with the Dallas Police Department and lost. Ugh. And he was in a, confined to a wheelchair the rest of his life. And they felt sorry for him. And I think he was getting somewhere in the 100 or 150 10 milligram Valium prescribed to him a month. And I would buy all of them. Did you ever end up in a treatment center or a hospital? Yeah, so for all the wrong reasons, I asked my wife to marry me. I, I loved her, but I didn't really want to quit drinking. I thought I might slow down if I married her. Same and thing you thought when you bought the house. Yeah, and <laughs> shortly after that, we had a baby. Uh huh. And none of that helped, Mike. I just, Katie barred the door. I kept drinking the way I was used to. Uh, let me go behind that. And tell you that uh, uh, during that time, my my father died. And after he died, I want to say for two years after he died, I crawled up inside a Miller Light can. The drinking got really bad. The two years with Sharon kind of finally wore her out. And she was always telling me she was going to leave me. Well, here we are on Belfield, and one day she's packed up. And I'm like, who are you trying to kid? And I would do my little normal scenario of go to the garage sneeze and open a beer at the same time and she goes who do you think you're kidding with that she goes i'm leaving for real if you don't come talk to those and she grabbed her suitcase i went whoa 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 okay i'll go talk to him who did who she want you to talk to she wanted me to go to parkside back then it was a uh, treatment center in wilmer okay a one-month treatment center she worked for mary Kay as a travel advisor and they flipped a ten thousand dollar bill to send me there yeah they, that was hot back then what year was that ish well that was the, my sobriety day. The day I got there was the first day of my treatment center. I stayed. Uh, it was January 25th, 1989. I've got a picture of myself, and I look like 17 years of hard road. And the doctor came back with my blood report, and he said, Mr. Mongaris, we have run your blood, and you have 1,880 milligrams of Valium running through your blood right now. He said, you see this asteroid on this chalkboard? And he drew an asteroid. And he said, you see this round thing? He goes, that's what your blood cell supposed to look like. Yeah. This one's what your blood cell looks like. He said, You're, you, you are going to drench the sheets here if you decide to stay for two weeks. Every night you're going to sweat until you get rid of all this Valium. I decided to stay, and he was absolutely correct. And at the second week, one, one morning I woke up and the sheets were dry. I was calm. I'd been getting three squares a day. And that's when it finally hit me, Mike. I... I absolutely had a drinking and drugging problem, and I had to quit at any cost or I was going to die. 
Wow. And did they talk about or recommend the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous? What were they saying to you? Oh, yeah. We were going to classes daily, and they were, they were saying, hey, Stan, uh, when you leave here, we need you to sell this vending business because you're not going to stay sober pushing these pool tables. The second thing you need to do you know, is 90 and 90, get a sponsor. And I was all about the second thing, but I was thinking maybe there was some way I could go during the day on these vending accounts and try. I asked my counselor what, what he wanted me to do, and he said, I don't care if you flip burgers. I don't care what you do, Stan, but don't be in these lounges checking jukeboxes. What did you do? You went against their suggestions and kept the vending business, yes? I did. How were you able to do that and maintain your sobriety in the early months and years? Did you have your wife run around and do all that? or did Well, you do- I did what they told me to do. I got a sponsor. I made 90 and 90, but I stayed thirsty, Mike. It yeah. was the thirsty thing. I kept praying to God to relieve me from the thirsties, but he didn't. It wasn't until I was working my fourth and fifth step and I was telling this guy all my evil deeds of my past and believe believe me, I've got a few. I knew that stand was gone and I knew God had changed me. Man, within a 48-hour period, about five months sober, I was not thirsty anymore. Talk a little bit more about that. How, how do you think that happened? It happened because I realized that if I'm going to go sit in front of Miss Watson and tell her that I relieved her of all her minks, diamonds, and furs with my checkbook, that, that, that that's so incredible that that stand is even here. You know, I'm sitting in front of a guy going, I'm driving home one night, and, uh, you know, my truck has a gate lift on it, and I saw your Whirlpool store here with all these loose Whirlpools, and this one wasn't chained up. I put it on my gate lift, took it home, stuck it in my backyard, and three years later I'm here to pay for it. Yeah. You know, that stand was not the stand, the drunk stand. I was different, wow. and I could change, and I didn't have to drink anymore. And there was a touch of happiness in getting all this garbage out, doing this fifth and sixth step. Can we talk about your first few 12-step AA recovery meetings? What, what were those like? I started catching heat from my lovely wife before the treatment, and I walked in there, and I made a few meetings. That was all about beating the heat. So it was a completely different stand after I got back from Parkside. And it was a, a different feeling when I picked up my, God, I would hate to even venture to guess what number was on that desire chip. But I'd picked up a, a closet full of them. And, and that, but that one was different. What it looked like for me is a lot of investment in this treatment. Uh, I found out at that time my mother had disinherited me and I have only one sister. I was like under the gun, to, not only to prove to myself, but to prove to some people that I could quit drinking. What did you think when you saw the word God on the wall for the first time at these AA meetings and said God up there on that wall? What did you think when you saw that? I looked around at all the faces in AA, and what I saw was recovery. When I saw that God thing, I realized that all these people had done it just the way those 12 steps read, a power greater than themselves, God, restore them to sanity and God come into their lives. And for once, it really wasn't scary. I was, ready, I was ready to let God in my heart and take Jesus Christ as my Savior. The, the benefiting factor is life forever with God. I had terrible character when I first sobered up. I gave you a couple of for instances. Up until that, that aha moment when I wasn't thirsty anymore, about three months in, I took my sponsor a present from the polo shop and this is the way I was at three months, if you're ready for this. 
a polo shirt. And he said, well, thank you, Stan. I said, look what I got while I'm there. And I lifted my, sh- my shirt, and I had about an $800 alligator belt on. He goes, how'd you get that? I said, I slid it on and walked out with it. He said, let me tell you something, Stan. If you don't stop stealing these little Excedrin tins from 7-Eleven and alligator belts and taking quarters from these accounts, you, you know, or some of the things you do that aren't 100%, he goes, you are going to get drunk again. And if you're going to continue that type of behavior, I want you to find another sponsor. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And he said, no, no, I'm done. That was 33 years ago. I made the decision right there that I was going to quit stealing from anything, anybody. I didn't have any accounts left hardly. So when I made that decision, now I'm being honest with all my accounts and all these new accounts today that I have, I... I have received since I sobered up because I didn't have any. I've been able to split every quarter with every account. I put the belt in an envelope and said, this doesn't belong to me, and sent it back to him. Oh, you did? To the Ralph Lauren yes. Polo Shop? Yeah. <laughs> like, here you go. And I quit stealing. That's so amazing. From everybody and everyone. Wow. And, you know, I've had many, many times I've been tested from tellers giving me several hundred dollars too much to... Just crazy stuff, and I immediately, my, I'm not into that anymore, Mike. I've yeah. been I've been honest for 33, 33 years and seven months. I remember when I very first got sober, I was going to this group in um, San Diego County. Um, it was called the Moose Lodge. It was an AA group called the Moose Lodge. I went in there with early sobriety, and they were like, "Does anybody have a topic today at the noon meeting?" And some guys like, "Let's talk about honesty." And uh, they start talking about honesty and stuff, like cash register honesty and different types of honesty, lying by omission and lying by commission. And I was learning all kinds of stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, why are we, is this AA? Why are we talking about honesty for an hour? What does that have to do with the remaining sober and getting sober? And then I slowly by little kind of put the numbers together and be like, oh, it's so you can live with yourself and be comfortable with yourself and not have to drink to change the way you feel. That's one component of getting sober and staying sober. And then they started talking about progress, not perfection with honesty. And, you know, I heard this one guy was one of my favorite quotes ever in AA. He's like, I lie, cheat and steal much less than I used to when I arrive. I'm trending downwards. (laughs) I was like, all right, dude. I like that for sure. So let's talk about your AA sponsor for a minute. How did you get one and um, how, how did they help you? Same thing. Picked him for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> he drove a brand new Lincoln. He was all about his suit and uh, his house. He had a beautiful wife. He was going to quit me and I really liked him because he was somebody on planet Earth and that's the wrong reason to, to pick a sponsor. And Rick Johnson is my sponsor who's sober about as long as I am. And he's just of great character. I know exactly. So I've had four sponsors in my lifetime. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time and how'd that work out for you? That never works. And, (laughs) and it just doesn't work if I'm, if I, it feels like I'm sponsoring myself and I'm not making three meetings a week, which I do uh, at least two a week religiously. Good. So that's your frequency right now with 30 plus years is about two to three a week. Yes, sir. Let me talk to you about your sponsorship style, the way that you sponsor other men and help other men and women too, I guess. Has your sponsorship style changed over the years? It seems like the older I get, the more I'd like to direct these guys to God. So I'm a little bit more heavily, heavily handed on the two and three to the point if I get a chance to save them, rather than just have God as your higher power, 
actually have them confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, mm-hmm. I do it. I didn't do that at first. Anything else besides that? At any given time, I'm sponsoring one or two guys at least. And, and it's just, uh, uh, I don't procrastinate like I used to. I try to get them through pretty quick. Give me an example. There's 12 steps. Are you trying to do one a week, one a month? What, do you, what, do you, what are you looking we, at? We hit one a week until we get to four. And then we take about three weeks, four weeks on four and five. Okay, and then after that, go back to the one, yeah, one a week and get them, get them all the way through. Cool. Where do you do it? Do you have them come to your house? Do you meet them at the club? Or at I have them come to my – all the above. Has the desire to drink or use drugs ever returned again since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? I was in one of my bars, and it was an alcoholic behind the bar, and he put a shot in my coffee when I wasn't looking, like a shot of scotch. Did he know you were sober and stuff? He did. Okay. And he, was, he, he, he wanted me to drink again. And I took a slug of that coffee, and I thought I'd ruined eight years of sobriety. Okay. I didn't know what to do. I did just like the book. I went. I put it down. It was a big enough slug where it was burning in my stomach. I went, wow, what an asshole. And I, I uh, drove myself to the 24-hour club where the director told me I had not lost my sobriety. That's something I didn't do on purpose. Told me to sit there for a while, just make a meeting for a while. And no, I did not lose my sobriety date because of... Somebody sabotaged me. But I've had these guys, these bar owners, sit in front of me and crunch up cocaine. And I use what I call the art of fling. And that's where I get off my ass and fling out the door. (laughs) Uh, And that's the only thing that works with me. So this guy's crunching up cocaine. He's told me something's broken in his place. But he won't tell me what so I can go fix it. He wants me to watch him do a rail. And then he wants to line me up a rail. And I'm like, Joe... I don't do that anymore. He goes, oh, come on, Stan, come on. I'm like, you know what? Got to go. See you later. Bye-bye. And I hit the door. And I said, I'll call you back. I'll send somebody else. You tell them what's wrong. You know, one day I was ordered a dozen oysters, and I had to have a cold beer. And I, I was like, I'll have a duck. I turn around. There it goes again. I'm fleeing out the door. Yeah. Uh, I just One day I took a guy, two cold Miller lights, and by the time I got him to him, you couldn't get him out of my hand. I was like, they really affected my brain. Yeah. My whole body had paralysis. Yeah. Guess what? I turned from there and walked straight to the door. Fling. I call it the art of fling. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you have been sober? And what did you do about it? That depression and anxiety shows up when Stan stops making meetings. And that's usually because I put my business ahead of AA. My primary purpose in life is to stay sober one day at a time. And I'm not going to do a dadgum thing to improve my life if I pick up a drink and start drinking again. I will lose every bit of business I have. I'll prove that to myself once. Long story short, if I don't make AA first, if I put my business first and, and miss a couple of weeks of meetings, life gets, I get cranky and real irritable and life gets bad and ugly. Has your wife ever suggested to you you might need to go to a meeting today or anything like that? Ever- Absolutely. Mine too. <laughs> she, she says that. Uh, she doesn't say it all the time because we get along really good. She's my soulmate. Gosh, I don't know what I'd do without Sharon. She's my bookkeeper. She quit working for Mary Kay. She's been doing her my books her whole life. And she's just very, very proficient, a very neat Nick. Yeah, she'll look at me and go, time for a meeting, hon? <laughs> After I barked a little. <laughs> You're like, okay, you, you're probably right. Um, what's the longest period of time chronologically you have gone in sobriety without going to a meeting? 
Two months. Really, two months. Yeah. That's about the longest. That's it. And you got super squirrely or whatever. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was ready. I was I was freaking out. I was Woody Allen in that movie, The End, when they wake him up after he's been asleep for 300 years. Yeah. You went in there and told on yourself. Did you go in there and say, this is my I, first meeting in two months? And, you know, it just seems like every time I do that, I'm telling people, you know, hey, I haven't been coming in a, on a raid. And that's my topic. My yeah. primary purpose is to stay sober. What What am I doing? Because I'm not helping myself if I'm not making meetings. Or your business associates or your clients or your wife or anybody. Because, like, we just get squirrely. You know, I've heard that term squirrely used. And we just kind of forget and drift. And, and for me, I just use it uh, these meetings as a lot of times as a recalibration unit for my brain and for my soul. These, these meetings, they reset me and they get me back on center. And it's just a real like, good idea for me to stay uh, right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and stay in recovery. That way I can stay balanced and happy and be of good service to others. So where are you at with God today? God has saved me. I'm going to be with him for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, I've got, I want to say I, right now I'm in the throes of sponsoring three guys through the steps. Um, I'm like, like I, I said earlier, I always try to instill God in them. And I've been pretty lucky. The guys that ask me to sponsor them usually believe in Jesus. So um, every morning when I get up, um, I read at least one page of the Bible, and I've got a devotional book I read. I give about 15, 30 minutes to the Lord, and that just centers me, and I'm, I'm really good with God today. What would happen if somebody that was Buddhist wanted you to sponsor them or somebody that didn't believe in Jesus and was more in a different vein of thinking and didn't really line up with your conception of God? Would you be able to work with somebody like that or would you kindly just kind of beg off and say find somebody else or what do you think? I'll, as long as their intent to stay sober is there and I see it, mm -hmm. I stay with them. Okay. Even though they, they don't believe in God. You know, I'll try to insert God, and they'll say, no, I just... And I've got guys with double-digit sobriety that I've never been able to bring to the table. Okay. And I haven't given up on. Okay. I mean, they're still sober. Yeah. So, uh, no, I don't fire them. Uh, if there's an intent to stay sober there, I stay with them. Okay, that's beautiful. I was hoping you were going to say that. Can you pick or select one of, any one of the 12 steps that you want to talk about and expound on that or... Pick something from the literature that you want to point out to us or read or do both, whatever you want to do. Where are you at with the steps? Pick one and highlight it and talk about it if you'd like to. Step two, for some reason, came to mind because of... We read it. It's right there in front of you, step two. We came to believe that God or a power greater than ourselves could restore me to sanity. You know, here I was uh, looking at my wife. I didn't have enough to make my house payment. I had a truck in the garage that had a bunch of drunk dents on it. You know, I'm begging her not to leave, but they're fixing to take my house away from me. Uh, I'm pretty much at the end of my ropes because I'm, I'm going to be, I don't know where I'll be living. Alcohol has done me in, and I'm getting a second chance to go to, to, to go to this. So I was really lucky that I didn't have to hit bottom, bottom. But if she'd have left that day, it wouldn't have been long, Mike, before I was either under the bridge or dead. And I'm really, truly convinced I'd have been dead because my health wasn't that good. Um, I smoked about three packs a day. I just did all the things you shouldn't do. So when, I, when it says restore, God restore me to sanity, I'm talking totally restore me to, to sanity because all my decisions were insane. 
It took that. It took that God to take the thirsties away at five months. It took God to come into my life and say, Stan, you can be a Stan of good character that doesn't have to steal anymore. Lo and behold, it happened. Let's dip into the literature a little bit here. I see you've got your big book with you and it's open. Is there anything in particular you might want to point out in the 12 and 12 or the big book in the literature you want to talk to us about today? This is on page 84, middle of the page. This thought brings up step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along, which means that life on life terms comes along and sometimes we resort back to the old way of thinking. We vigorously commence this way of life as we cleaned up the past. We have entered a world of the Spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentments, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance is our code. And here's the sentence that has helped me tremendously. And we, all alcoholics, have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. The old Stan used to fight everything and everybody and try to get his way. So for me to be able to turn loose and quit fighting anything, anybody, even liquor, if liquor becomes a problem, I use that art of fling. It's just, and this book is so riddled with different, it's hard for me to pick out one statement. But right off the bat, that's a biggie. I love that. Yeah, I love that. For this time, Sanity will have returned. I want to take a fast little break here and make some announcements about the website and some things that are going on with the podcast. And then as soon as we do this, we'll jump into step 11. I want to know about your step 11 practices and what styles of meditation and prayer you're using. So we'll jump into that after this. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here is a list of the things that you can do on our website, Sobershares.com. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. My personal email address for the show is mike at sobershares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon at the bottom of the page, and we'll play your voice and message back on the next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal button on our sobershares.com website. It's just a little blue square and it says donate and it says PayPal. It takes less than two minutes. You can use a debit card, credit card. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing a virtual basket at a meeting to keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly and help us cover our monthly expenses and memberships that we have to run this thing. I want to mention uh, one of our listeners by name who made a financial gift to move this project forward last month. His name is Chris F. So thank you to Chris F. This episode is coming out to you. And I want to ensure everybody out there listening that we value your time and attention as a listener. And our sole focus here at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people. And that guides everything that we do here. That's all I have to say for the announcements right now, and let's get back to our guest. Let's talk about step 11 for a moment. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. What styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you using today? I am um, waking up every morning 
And I find that if I let my day's events get in the way of my meditation, it doesn't go as smooth. Meaning that if I call one of my employees first and talk about my different different array of problems on my route, or if I get in, in, encompassed in some type of book work that I needed to do the night before, before I do my prayer meditation, it doesn't go as smooth. If I put God in my prayer meditation first, I feel like he's happy, and it just goes so much smoother. I've got a Billy Graham devotional book out of all my multiple, multiple books. That's what I've been reading lately. A simple Billy Graham-type one-page devotional with a prayer. And then I'm usually in the Bible with at least one page and then prayer. And then it goes something like this. After I read a couple of pages in the Bible, I will stop and say a prayer or two, and I will just have a little bit of quiet time and listen and see if God has something for me. A lot of times, God will talk to me. Yeah, like the other day, I was in a, uh, in a Walmart parking lot, and this lady was walking by, and God said, give her some money. And I'm like, what? And You know, I don't question those times. Did she look in distress or homeless or yeah, just? Yeah, she looked a little in distress, but she didn't even ask me for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was just, so what happened? Tell us that story. So God told you that and what did you say? Oh, she just looked at me like she was super grateful and puzzled and took the money and kept on, you know, said did thank you, you so, you so got, much. You got out of your car and just rolled up on her. What did you say? Take us No, I, yeah. When I get that, if I don't obey God, I pay for it. So a lot of times too with these people on the streets, I never give them money. But every blue moon, God will go give that one money. I need you to help this guy. Give him some money. And I'll hear it just like that. Okay. And I'll roll down my window and go, come here, man. And I'll give him money. What um, do you say to him? I, I just say, you know, God wants you to have this. And that's what you said to the lady at yeah, Walmart? Yeah, I said, God on. wants you to have this. And uh, she just looked at me like, wow. She had, some, she had some other issues going on. I didn't find out what they were. She just went on her way. I went on my way. God stays happy with me that way. Do you have a certain place in your house that you have designed for prayer and meditation, like a certain chair or a room or inside, outside? I know you have a beautiful back patio. I mean, do you ever do it out there? I, You know what? I don't. I'm in the kitchen at my little table, little chair. I'm overlooking my patio, my plants, my, my backyard, the lighting's well, and I just go through my prayer and meditation right there in the mornings. Does your wife ever join you, or has she? She, does, she doesn't get up that early. It seems like the older I get, Mike, the yeah. earlier I go to, the older I get, the earlier I go to bed and the earlier I get up. What time are you going I'm, to bed? I'm, I, I'm going to bed at nine o'clock these days. All right. That sounds good to me. <laughs> what time you get up? Six. That's fine. That sounds super healthy to me. I'd love to do that. Dude. I get tired at nine o'clock and I look at my 11 year old son. I'm like, I look at my little fifth grade son and I'm like, yo, it's nine o'clock. You ready to go to bed? He's like, nope. <laughs> and then I'm like, come on, let's go to bed. It's nine, nine thirty. He's like, for what? I was like, cause you have school tomorrow. And then in the morning when I go in there to wake him up at six or six 30 or seven, I'm like, you ready to get up? He's like, nope. I was like, it's cause you didn't go to bed early last night. I think, you know, we talk about self care in the rooms a lot. And I think a big part of self care is learning how in sobriety to be kind to yourself. And that includes so many different things that you can fall under the umbrella of self-care. One of the most valuable tools for sure, for sure, that I learned in early sobriety, and I don't believe it's in the big book or the Bible or any probably spiritual literature, but it's an acronym called HALT. And HALT, a lot of you listeners know, and some of you don't, it stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. H-A-L-T, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. And they were talking about that a lot in the meetings in Southern California in my early days of sobriety. And 
And I really took that into consideration and kind of made it a part of my early recovery as far as the self-care component, being nice to myself. And what I did is H stands for hungry. What would I do? I wouldn't go too long without eating. And I would try to make a good choice, a good healthy choice. Angry, I would talk to somebody about it. Lonely, I would go to a meeting and find fellowship. Tired, I'd go to bed and make sure that I had good sleeping habits. And all those things transitioned into self-care, me being kind to myself and helped enhance and help me embrace recovery and sobriety. Um, do you have any AA heroes or mentors? And if so, why are they important to you? Any AA heroes or mentors? My sponsor, the sponsor of the guy that had five years, he was. I had him the longest, Jack Hundall. Mm-hmm. And he was sober 50 years. His father was the founder of Mutual of Omaha. He was kind of born with a silver spoon. He, he He's in that category of a, a spiritual hero. Can you illustrate something for us that a sponsor has taught you and it could be anything something that they taught you how to deal with finances something that how they taught you to deal with interpersonal relationships i don't know what it is i don't i don't know what you're going to say but can you can you give us an example of something that one of your sponsors taught you that just changed your life in a dramatic way the first one harping the honesty is probably the big one okay that has really helped me um become of good character. Okay. You know, the fact that I no longer find it necessary to steal anything from anybody, it's just so huge. It's just huge. Of course, I had other character defects, and it just seems like, Mike, the longer I stay sober, uh, stuff that I used to do years ago, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up. I'm 33 years sober. Well, I waited till I was 31 years sober before I stopped watching dirty movies. I used to make deals with God. And I got, I got kind of backed into a corner with this COVID thing. And I went through $150,000 keeping my business open for a year. Yeah. And I was running out of money and I couldn't get that loan that the, they were giving for your employees. Mm-hmm. And my bank was just like, Chase, it was too big. I was somewhere in the bank. I was lost in the paperwork. I said, God, if you will get me this loan, I'll quit watching porn. 48 hours after I made that statement, I had the loan. Wow. And I said, you know, you know, I I just agreed to quit for a year, but I've been off, you know, going on two years now. And I don't need it anymore, Mike. It was just bad. So other things that I used to do, uh, one by one, they've all fallen by the wayside. All my character, and I consider that watching porn a character defect. Okay. So, you know, what? It took me 30 years. Well, and then it, I did it the wrong way, too. I made a deal with God. Well, I darn sure don't want to, you know, I wanted to hold my end up and stay sober a year, but I don't need to go back to that. And uh, I sat down at breakfast at a place called New House, and the guy said, Stan, our bank's never going to get us the loan. Here's Liberty. Here's a guy. Contact him. He'll do it in 24 hours. I did it. I had it in 48 hours. Wow. And it was like an hour after I made, after I asked God to help me find this loan. Wow. <laughs> kind of crazy. And that's kind of a crazy admission. Um, I don't know what your feelings on. But it's it beautiful. Just, it's beautiful. It tells me, it, what it does is it gives me hope. And what, the way that that gives me hope is that three plus decades into your sobriety journey, you're still doing character refinement. Amen. And character development. And for what that means to me is at, at 21 years sober, I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, Okay, Mike, he just said that. So what does that mean for you? That means, A, there's still hope for you. B, there's still work to be done. And C, if Stan can do it, I can do it. 
So that gives me hope that I can turn around and give to the guys behind me on the trail that we're on, which is the trail on the path of sobriety. Did you have any special challenges about staying sober through the pandemic? Did you like ever get down enough where you thought about drinking or drugging or relapsing? Did, were you able to still go to meetings? Did you just try to do Zoom meetings or did you just not go for a while? What did the pandemic look like on your sobriety? At first, not want to do the Zoom meetings. So I went about three weeks without a meeting and I call it tight lip sobriety. It's just a dry drunk is all it is. That's what I was getting to. I got on board with the Preston Group Zoom. Okay, me too. And you know what? They were better than nothing at all. And I made. <laughs> I went back to my normal default three a week. Yeah. And I was good, but it took me a while. Because yeah. that three weeks, I don't just walk into a meeting after three weeks and, and I'm feeling warm and fuzzy. Yeah. It takes me a while to get back. It's like warming up a classic car. Yeah. It takes a little bit. It takes a few <laughs> minutes to get everything going just right. I didn't know what to do because all the clubs that I went to in person closed. And mm-hmm. they're like, we're doing Zoom meetings. And I'm like, what's Zoom? I don't know what Zoom is. I mean, I've heard of it. And they're like, oh, it's a you know screen sharing and virtual meetings, whatever. And so I tried it, and it was not the same. It was gr- it was a great substitute for me. And yes, I got on board with the Preston noon meetings, and Aquarius started a bunch of um, meetings, and then those broke off into some other ancillary meetings. But uh, I I enjoyed them enough to keep me sober. I will tell you truthfully, and all the listeners. I did not think about drinking or doing drugs one second during the pandemic. Good for you. Not one second did I ever consider it. Relapse was not on my mind. Great. It was more about what can I do today to stay sober, live to good emotional purpose, and stay in emotional balance and be of service to my family and my community. And how... Is God going to help me and protect me today? That was my everyday overarching view. I had no doubt that it was happening and it would happen and it would continue to happen. I was just curious every day, how's God going to step up and take care of me today? Every day I would just watch. I'd be like, oh, well, that, it looks like that. Oh, it looks like that. I'm not trying to discount the pandemic because it was real and it was big and it was hard and it's still going, but I just wanted to tell everybody out there that I had put in enough work in the 18 or 19 years before it came around to build an unshakable faith and an unshakable foundation with my belief in a higher power in God and that no matter what happened, he loved me and he was going to take care of me no matter what. And so thank God that I got sober when I didn't have that foundation. Um, one of the girls I interviewed on this podcast, Sober Shares, a couple episodes back, Leslie Kay, got sober during the pandemic on Zoom. And that was a very interesting episode to listen to. So if you guys have time, slide back in the catalog and listen to Leslie Kay if you want to hear somebody in early sobriety that got sober during the raging pandemic days. The first summer of 2020 is when she got sober. That was very interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe what has been your toughest challenge in sobriety so far and how have the 12 steps helped you with that? As you stay sober, all your defects of character, I think, eventually will go away because you just become a better person. I'd like to tell you today, I don't judge people, and uh, I'm 100% there. Um, I'm Mr. Character and Mr. Upright. Stan's will still, still gets in the way sometimes. So I have to pray for the knowledge of what God wants for me, and I've got to stay. I've really got to stay in tune with this AA and God. And that, believe it or not, on a daily basis, it's not a, it's not a, the toughest challenge, but it's something that you strive for in here. 
like right now I've got any given day, I've got a set of variables that that's always challenging. I've got, I do my own books. I own my own business and I try to give my accountant everything done. And I've got the whole third and fourth quarter stacked looking at me. I've got to sit down and get it all ready for him. It's just, uh, it's, and this is because I've been sober for 33 years and I've built a business that's large now. And, and it's a challenge every day to keep things right in this business. Ask God for help with that. So I've got a lot of book work ahead of me in the next couple of three weeks to get it to my accountant every year. I hired another guy this year. Uh, it's hard to find honest people in this business because I'm turning them loose, counting a lot of money. And what happens is one of the things I prerequisites is I, you have to take a lie detector test once a year. And my last guy started stealing and I had to fire him and hire a new guy. And it's just always a challenge. I've got to take the new guy by the hand. I've got to take him in the accounts. And I need a lot of help from God to, to have the patience and, and do that or maybe have another employee do that. It's just very challenging. Why would you say that going to meetings is important? Because that keeps me keeps my screw in the top of my head tight. Because everything I just mentioned, the bookkeeping, the employees, the everything falls by the wayside if I'm not making meetings. And then it gets to me like, well, you're not going to be able to finish. And I start getting a negative cast. Well, this guy's stealing from you. You know he is. And I get a negative cast on all my thoughts, which just does nothing but like a snowball going downhill. The meetings keep that from happening. They keep me in a positive set. Do you have any complaints about the AA program or any parts that you think need to be changed? I do not. I do not have any complaints. Um, I think it's worked for years and years. Um, and I just, uh, you know, it's a tool that God put out there for you and me, Mike. And you can either uh, you can even either embrace it or walk away from it. I think it's a tool that really works right. And I think it wor- works right the way it, it works uh, right now. I wouldn't make any changes to it. I love, I love AA. Everything it's done for me. I keep wanting to ask that question until somebody comes up with some answers. <laughs> Talking about, oh, yeah, I think we should change this or take a look at that or redact that part. I'm just waiting for somebody to take the bait on that one to see if they want to change <laughs> AA. Uh, can you give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? The economics insecurity of me being uh, out there at the point when my wife, when I checked into treatment, losing my house and losing my car and being under a bridge right there at the right there at the cliff looking down at that point, things were just not well financially for me. And so the fear of uh, economic insecurity was monumental back then. And that has left me today. That's one of the promises that's come through totally. I no longer harbor about the the old stand. So the fear of the past and, and not want to close the door on it. I mean, I can, I can sit here of, of good heart, even though I've told y'all a lot of my nasty past, and not worry about what I've told y'all, because I'm not that guy anymore. Um, I'm the stand that's going forward, that's going to save a few lives in AA, I hope, and keep helping and keep putting, you know, putting my work, because I know, I know that the, that's what God would have me do. Can you explain what it feels like to be forgiven by your higher power for your past? I think that the reason that I stayed thirsty for five, six months is because I knew God would never forgive me. I just didn't didn't know my higher power was a God that had always answered these foxhole prayers. 
I didn't know how to reach out and listen and, and be a willing participant and do his will for me one day at a time. I think God has uh, restored me to sanity, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I had an experience like that, and it was a uh, profound experience that happened to me in Southern California when I was surfing. It was actually during a surf uh, trip, and it was early in sobriety, and I was working the steps actively with my sponsor, and I was sitting there, and I was looking up at the mountains, and I was looking down at the reef, and I was sitting on my surfboard looking around at all the fish and the waves coming in, the, the sun sparkling off of the, the waves, and I just had this overwhelming thought and presence that God loved me and he was going to take care of me no matter what. And he was going to help me be a better person and a better guy and a new guy. And that he knows that I had done a bunch of bad stuff in the past. Like he knows that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I had done a lot of things that were question of questionable moral character and that he forgave me for that and that I was going to be okay. And I just remember that feeling coming over me strongly. It felt like he, he loved me and he forgave me for being a bad guy an active alcoholic and it would lie, cheat and steal to get whatever he wanted to continue to drink and drug at the level that I was drinking and drugging. And so that just felt really transformative to me that time, that time period in early sobriety. And I'm thinking I had about five months sober when that happened. I think I had five or six months sober when that happened. And it was just a beautiful experience for me to, to get to the point where I felt like I was forgiven for my past. I know that you're heavily involved in service work in the program and, and, and can you talk a little bit about that? What what motivates you to work with all these newcomers? Because I know it chews up time and energy. I mean, why do you do it? Why do you work with all these new guys? Why do you sponsor so many guys? That keeps it fresh for me. Um, you you just mentioned that you know that the first few months were really really exciting for you. Well, that brings the first few months back to me. If I, I can, I I had a guy reach out to me that uh, just got out of Green Oaks and he looked terrible two months ago when I picked him up. As a sponsee, he's a master electrician. And in two months, he's cleaned up really well. And, and some of the things he tells me spark old ideas and old thoughts that, you know, they were deep down in me, but, you know, I have to be reminded about them. And, and they keep it fresh. They keep it new. I don't get uh, redundant with AA with these new guys because I'm hearing new things from them. There are different drinks that they can order nowadays than way back when you and me used to drink, Mike. The only thing I can say is that it just keeps it keeps a real new, fresh look on sobriety when I've always got a couple of three sponsees. That's amazing because you've been sober so long. And what I've noticed by my powers of observation is guys with your level of sobriety, a lot of those dudes only like to sponsor guys that are 20 plus years sober. I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of long-term sober dudes, they're like, yo, I specialize in 20 years plus sober. Uh, they don't necessarily 100% want to mess with the guys that have a month or two or three months because it's been 30 years since they were there. And I don't know the reasons they don't necessarily want to do that, but a lot of guys with long-term sobriety, in my observation, have shied away from that. You are not part of that demographic. You're staying on the battle lines of uh, recovery and, and working with those new guys, which I think can bear much fruit. I want to talk about AA conferences and what you think about them. Uh, have you been to any AA conferences? Do you like them? What do, you, what do you think about those things? You know, anytime you get a group of alcoholics together, I think it's it's really good. Um, and then you bring in some special speakers that have been, you know, either for one reason or another, they're 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 special because they're entertaining, and they've got a a, a twist to their story that's uh, that's good. 
And so they bring in these these speakers for these conferences that have uh, have told their story and caught the ear of people who want them to tell it to more people. And so other people get rewarded by listening to these these great speakers. So I really have enjoyed. I've been to a couple of three of them. Really have enjoyed the conferences I've been to. What about international conferences? Have you never ever, have been really? Do you have any interest in going? Maybe. Okay. Uh, there's one coming up in 2025, I believe, in Vancouver, Canada, um, that Scott is going to go to and I'm going to go to and uh, whoever else we can get to go. So we might try to get a group of guys to go to the International Conference in Vancouver, Canada in 2025. So we'll we'll take your temperature on that as we get closer to buying plane tickets and making reservations. But um, I really uh, personally enjoy um, all AA conferences for me. I, they're fun. I like them. Mm-hmm. I like them. I definitely do. So we're getting towards the end of our time together. I'm going to ask you a question about having any parting thoughts for our audience. But before we do that, I wanted to see if you um, wanted to talk about your son at all. We can or we can't. It's up to you. I don't know what you would want to say or not say. I've heard you talk about him in meetings. I know you probably start off by telling him that you love him because he might hear this one day. There's a, okay. ch- there's a chance that he might hear this I've one day. I've got a son out there. I've got two sons. One of them's an entertainer. He sings at a lot of clubs. He's a Christian. He's uh, the younger one. The older one did so much drugs and drinking that he's scared the younger one doesn't dr- drug or drink at all. Okay. Anyway, the older one, at points in his life he's had, the longest he's had is two years, but after he got married to a TCU cheerleader that last time, they got a divorce. He got hooked on methamphetamines about 20 years ago, and he's been living on the streets of Dallas for 20 years. I think it's a real shame his dad sobers up all these people or helps him stay sober in AA with God's help, and he can't get his own son sober. So I've never lost faith. I pray to God daily almost that he fix Evan. And on God's time, I feel like he will. It's something that can happen, but Evan is a methamphetamine addict living on the streets of Dallas. His dad has told him he will pay for, you know, not a real pricey treatment, but these $150 a week live-in sobriety houses here in Dallas. But he chooses to live out in 20-degree weather this winter, sleeping here or there. And I guess he's still got, he's a good-looking kid. He's got, he, he had a lot of con in him. He slept on a lot of couches in his lifetime, but I don't know how he does it. I don't know how you reach that kind of low. And uh, don't take your dad up on sobering up. He's had an opportunity to run my business a couple of times, and it's been a disaster. So I just kind of have to give up on on that end of it. But I'm not giving up that he won't get sober one day. You want to tell him you love him on here so when he hears it? Yeah, Evan, if you're listening out there, I love you to death. I want the best for you, and I'd love to hear – are you still contact me? He came over the other day after New Year's and had lunch. I'd love to see you again. Just keep contacting me, and uh, maybe one of these days you'll take me up on my offer and go to one of these halfway deals. I've heard you share about him in meetings, and it's it's very interesting and heartfelt and just real and raw and honest when you talk about him in meetings. So I thought we would paint a full picture of your life and, and give the listeners a, a real solid view of what's going on in your life. But uh, yeah, recovery is possible for everyone. And hopefully he joins us and takes us up on your offer and God's offer and joins us as we walk the road to happy destiny together. Um, let's talk about final parting thoughts for our audience. Is there anything that you want to wrap this thing up with or any kind of final thoughts, anything we have not hit yet? You know, when you think about the sobriety I've got to some people, it's a bit overwhelming. For those of you out there that are just getting started with AA, the best way to do this thing is just concentrate on today. 
It's one day at a time. You don't have to have a bunch of sobriety like me to stay sober this day. And if you picked up a desire chip recently, it's just one day at a time. That's the way you do it. And life gets so much better if you can stay sober and work these 12 steps, find a sponsor, and let God into your life. God bless all of y'all, and I hope all of y'all stay sober. I appreciate it. That's beautiful. Um, Let's talk about contact information. Would you like to give out an email address or a phone number in case people ever want to get in touch with you, ask you questions, comments? What do you want to do on that? Yeah, so I'm here in Dallas. Uh, This is my cell that I answer. Um, If it's something pertaining to AA that you'd like to ask, uh, I wouldn't mind talking to you. My number here in Dallas, and my name is Stan Mongeras, is 214-679-0325. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on Sober Shears today. This has been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I'm going to read something from page 164 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is called A Vision for You. This book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. I just had one more question pop into my mind. Have you ever been to any Al-Anon meetings regarding your son? I have. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with Al-Anon? We don't really hit Al-Anon. We haven't hit Al-Anon that hard on this podcast, but I would love to talk about your experience there. And if you've learned anything there, any tools, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, Al-Anon is great. In Evan's case, uh, I, I needed to get to a point where I needed to practice a little more tough love. He's stolen from me when I've let him spend the night at my house. It just always turns into a disaster. If he comes over, he wants to stay. He seems like he wants to squat. And it's given me the tools of how to just say no, how to be a better parent. Al-Anon is huge in everyday life with an alcoholic and how you stay on your end of the street, but yet you do that with dignity. I've been to like three Al-Anon meetings. Yes. I'd like to know. They talk about boundaries a lot and yes. their healthy boundaries yes. and kind of teach you how to detach. And and they will, they, there's a lot of, you got women in there who've got husbands that are alcoholics. You got husbands who's women. They don't have to make a move overnight. They're learning how to do it. Just like we are learning how to stay sober. I do hope to showcase Al-Anon at some point on this podcast. I will be actively searching over the next few guests to try to find somebody that has some real deep experience within the Al-Anon community and try to highlight and showcase that program as well, which is a sister program related to um, Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to read one more thing here. This is called the rewards. These are the rewards of staying sober. One, hope instead of desperation. Two, faith instead of despair. Three, courage instead of fear. Four, peace of mind instead of confusion. Five, self-respect instead of self-contempt. Six, self-confidence instead of helplessness. Seven, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. Eight, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. Nine, real friendships instead of loneliness. Ten, a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless existence. Eleven, the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. Twelve, the freedom of a happy life 
instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. Really appreciate y'all joining us on Sober Shares today. I want to thank Stan one more time, and we will see y'all on the next episode. Go check out our website, SoberShares.com.